The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Tuesday, December 19th, 2017. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Still got a little bit of the uh, tongue pain. Trying to figure out the old tongue pain. You'll bear with me. My insights are just so valuable. The fact that I don't have my full linguistic glottal range won't get in the way. When I tell you that but for a procedural snag, the House has passed tax reform. Now, if Trump had a Rose Garden ceremony for passing Trump care out of one chamber, what is he going to do if they pass this entire bill out of both chambers? I've got it. Trump Baku. Book the junket as a pass-through entity. Woohoo! And we're just learning some of the fun details about what's going on in this tax bill. Like the big, broad details are known. A lot of money back for the rich guys. But the International Business Times reported on a corker kickback. They were wrong. It wasn't a kickback. It wasn't a last-minute grab to get the guy's vote. It was in there the whole time. A special cutout that benefits wealthy homeowners like Senator Bob Corker in a totally above-board and transparent manner. Senator Orrin Hatch angrily said this wasn't put in in the last minute to buy his vote. It was in there the whole time to buy his vote, or really, to help anyone who's already making millions and millions of dollars. You know, this was non-secretive. We've been quite honest the whole time. It's, it's really the sort of thing that could have come up and been debated for months if we had any committee hearings. So it's not a lie to say that this personal benefit going to a wealthy senator or some wealthy senators in some specific industries were in the bill the whole time. That is not a lie. This is a lie. Tax reform will protect low-income and middle-income households, not the wealthy and well-connected. They can call me all they want. It's not going to help. I'm doing the right thing. And it's not good for me, believe me. I guess you could say we don't know if it's a lie, or you could say we don't know the extent of the lie because we don't know what Trump pays on taxes, ever, nor will we ever. Great, fantastic. It's a little hard to take, I think. And that is why the Disney animatronic Hall of Presidents makes it all go down that much easier. Let us now take those words that seem offensive, like a slap in the face, and put them in the mouth of robo-President Trump. And it's not good for me, believe me. Somehow it's less unctuous, right? Less, less venal, more metallic, more methodic. A different sheen, because we know robots don't lie. They sometimes do horrible things in calm voices. I'm sorry, Hal. But they don't lie. Of course, if Disney's Hall of President Trump were a true robot, like your classic 1950s sci-fi robot, he'd have destroyed himself with does not compute paradoxes long ago. We know one thing. Robots hate paradoxes. And Republicans love tax cuts. And that's why on the spiel, I will talk about why Republicans would, and indeed did, pass this tax cut bill. But first, I talk to the producer and host of a daily podcast called The Daily. The Daily from the New York Times is, oh, do I have to tell you? It's a daily podcast from the New York Times. Michael Babara hosts, and he is here with one of his producers, Theo Balcom, who is the managing producer of The Daily. 
Thank you guys for being on. Thank hey, you, Mike. happy to be here. So I was listening to you. You know what? I always do this, and here's where I go back and acknowledge the thank you. Yes, thank you for coming. So I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to you guys when it started as the run-up, which was, now you tell me, Michael, was it originally conceived only to cover the election and then you realize what you had there or was there some thought that that will be a toe in the water and we'll see how it goes it wasn't a toe in the water because i don't think we knew how big the pond was during the campaign the times had this idea that it could launch a twice a week podcast that kind of matched all of the fascination with this particular campaign and we started it really late it was essentially at the moment that we had our nominees hillary clinton and Donald Trump. So we put out this twice a week show. And the epiphany we had was that people were really engaging with this family that we had created on the show of, you know, the Maggie Haberman or the Patrick Healy or the Nick Confessori, and that listeners were really craving those voices and that authority and their storytelling. And I became the person who kind of talked them through stories and they talked me through stories. And, and we decided that that was working and that there was an audience for it. And once we found that out and the campaign came to an end, we asked ourselves, could this twice a week thing we're doing be compressed into a shorter daily program? And would there be an audience for that? And there wasn't really an on-demand newsy daily audio show out there. So it was a pretty radical proposition when we started it in February. You mean an on-demand newsy daily in the morning radio podcast radio show? You mean of in course. the morning? Yes, right. only in the morning. <laughs> right, we were All, really shooting for the pre-gist audience. Right, yeah, exactly. As people were waiting with bated breath for the gist to come out, we figured we could try to sneak in there. Yeah, just slot mm -hmm. ourselves in right before. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Theo, when did you come on? <laughs> I came on in January, the month before we launched. Were you lured away? I knew you uh, at NPR. You were one of the yeah. young superstar producers. Yeah, she was lured. Yeah. Oh, my yes. God. Was the pitch, this will be enough like NPR that you'll have some ballast and uh, it will be highly journalistic, but enough not like NPR that you could do some fun stuff? Yeah. I think for me, it was like I just wanted to make a daily show and – I think we went in feeling like we don't know what this is going to sound like. Like we didn't really have a blueprint. And so we were creating it however we wanted to create it. And Michael and I had like early conversations with each other where we would we would sort of define things like I remember we had a conversation early on where we said, you know, we never want to have anything that's obligatory. Mm. Right. We mm. always want to do stuff that is necessary. You know, we were t it was a Friday and and the jobs report had come out. And I was like, oh, my gosh. I never, do we have to do jobs I reports? never want to do a jobs report. Right. Or, a promise, or a markets report. I'll, I'll give promise you one. we're never going to do a jobs report. Housing starts. How about that one? Yeah, right, right, right. right. And so we, knew, so we knew that that was like a defining thing that we wanted and that we, that we wanted to do stories that felt necessary, but we weren't just going to do them just to do them. Right. We started to define things, and maybe this wasn't the most productive thing, but we started to define the show around what we didn't want it to be yeah. as well as what we wanted it to be. Yeah. And we knew – that the world of podcasting had kind of changed the game and that if we were going to create a daily show, that it could contain all of the elements of podcasting that felt so unique from traditional broadcast news. You know, there's something kind of confessional and intimate and compelling about it. And we were never going to be a confessional calling kind of show, but we knew that there was something in the air and in the water around yeah. podcasting that we could draw from as we made this 
kind of new idea of a daily on-demand audio show. And and so we were thinking about how to how those strands could be brought together. And maybe maybe the reason that you defined it as to what you're not going to be are two reasons. I find that people bond based on like things they don't like. The fact that I don't like <laughs> Mash and one of my best friends <laughs> was the other guy who didn't like Mash. That's very bonding. <laughs> but also you the unspoken, unstated, uh, uh, I almost said gist, but raison d'être of the show is a public radio type check in on the news with a host driving it and times reporters coming on and there definitely would be some whittling away at the edges of what that marble statue would be but you knew that it would be made of marble you knew that it would you know look like a person you you already without even saying it tell me if i'm wrong you you knew the basics of what it would be without even saying it is that right what do you think, Theo? Well, we knew that Times journalism was going to run the show. I mean, one of the things that we had an advantage of that we have the advantage of is that we have a gajillion journalists out there, like, toiling in the mines, digging up the diamonds for us, right? right? Yeah. So we knew that we were going to be pulling together all of that incredible work and figuring out a way to tell it. I think it was kind of unclear how we were going to do that. Was it going to be purely like a sort of chatty show with reporters? Mm-hmm. Was it going to be – was it going to take the form of a more – longer form narrated thing like we've sort of landed on is it gonna are we gonna mix that up with scoops and sort of quick hits with people like mike schmidt matapuzo i don't think it was like marble statue we know exactly what that's gonna look like but but we did know that we were gonna use the resources that we had which are the amazing times journalists yeah and and you know from booking public radio i mean if you told most public radio shows all right here's what you have just about any times journalists will be on call. Yes. That right. that public radio right. producer would say, okay, I could. that's all I need. I could book a show based on that. No, totally right. I so, just want to say we, yeah. we, weren't in, we weren't exactly sure when the show started that we would have 1,300 journalists on call. I think that was a very mm. much an open question. Mm-hmm. Uh, will New York Times journalists respond to our emails mm-hmm. and our phone calls mm-hmm. on a Sunday night mm-hmm. when we have to put out a Monday show mm-hmm. or even you know Monday in the middle of the day when they're on deadline? And the the – the part that's been most surprising and gratifying is how quickly the yeah. New York Times has embraced yeah. this idea that it, the kind of the transmutation of their yeah. journalism to audio means that they are going to participate. They, they have all participated. We have not had a single Times reporter turn us down for no. any other reason yep. than that they were on vacation. And even when we've had people on, like <laughs> Peter Baker, on vacation. Peter Baker on vacation yeah. In California, it's yeah. a really fancy hotel because I remember looking it up when I – ish fancy. Um, what, I hope he'd be thrilled to hear me say that. Um, answers the phone and does like a self-sync right. you know, in his hotel room right. to do us a favor. So they've really well, responded but, to it. But Mike, you should know that Michael is like taking himself out of the equation. That is because Michael is so respected by his colleagues that he has such cachet in this building. You know, he's been here and, and just made wonderful – friendships and connections with people and they want to talk to him. I mean, and and you hear that when you hear the interviews, right? Like people just like coming into the studio and hearing Michael's questions and being around Michael. So that is a huge, huge part of it. So what is the structure? Uh, I know that you're a producer. You're not the only producer. How many producers are there? What are you doing every day? How do the producers break down their tasks? 
Yeah. So we uh, come in in the morning and, and one of our uh, members of the team goes to the 930 meeting, which is where all of the um, desk editors from around the building gather. And we're there to just kind of listen, take in what their targets are for the day. And then we take those ideas and come back and have our own meeting. And then the team kind of just follows what they're curious about that day. So we might have a driving question that we're curious about. We might already know what one of the segments is, a feature piece that we've been working on for a while and we just need to top it with some news. Um, so we'll sort of bandy about ideas then. And then we figure out who can move forward on which segments. So each segment is usually handled by one or two producers, an editor and Michael. And we figured out a way to kind of get ahead at least a little bit, you know, because when you hear the show, you hear all of the archival sound that we have, you hear scoring, you hear external interviews, that kind of thing. So we start gathering that kind of stuff as we're scripting and writing, um, which Michael could talk a little bit more about in terms of crafting narrative and that kind of thing. Um, but then uh, we go and we tape the interviews and then we'll tag team at the in the post-production as well, because as you hear in the show, that's a big part of what we do. So a producer might split up the interview. So if something's going kind of chronologically, I might take the beginning of the interview and start cutting that down and the other producer might take the back end and start cutting that down or I might say hey there's this scene I really need to illustrate of Obama in the Oval Office can I shoot that to you and then that producer will go and start weaving in that beautiful sound and making the scene work and then we're and then we're finishing up the script and the copy um, doing the doing the tracking for that and then packaging it all together and getting it out for the next morning is it like an all things considered I mean is it very much like a public radio show it's really different it's um it's it because the team is small we're yeah. almost all touching an element of every show we have the ability to to really collaborate in a way that I think you don't when you have a, a 25 30 person staff and when, and right. when and you're to filling, explain to people, you're filling 23 minutes I was just going to say to explain to people yeah. on a public radio show yeah. they will say all right who is the producer on this interview with uh, Peter Kenyon in the field and yep. that will be Theo and then right. you'll be doing that and no one else will be doing that but yep. you also probably won't be doing anything else that hour Right. But I might also be getting an inter- uh, a piece that Mike Pesca has written and I need to hurry because he's going to crash the show and I need to get his tracks never, in. Never happened. <laughs> never happen. How much, Michael, how much collaboration or input do you get from producers in crafting your questions? Lots. Lots. I think, I think to answer that question, we have to establish kind of what is the essential DNA of a daily segment. And that, I think, helps explain what's different about it yeah. than a traditional print. Yeah. interview, which I would probably just craft on my own, have a bunch of notes and, you know, call up a person and do the interview. I mean, we we describe this as narrative news. And I think the, the thing to know about it is that most any segment we do has a very special kind of pacing and character development and suspense built into it. And, and that's the narrative part of this news. And the, to do those interviews well we can spend 90 minutes to two hours really hashing through where does this piece start? Where does it go? What corner may it turn? What amazing pivot might it make? Where's the climax? Exactly. And where does it end? And that that is candidly a totally unnatural way for a print journalist to organize an interview. And the most intense experience of learning for me on the show has been understanding how you even structure such an interview like where do you even begin that yeah interview? That, and that it has an arc yeah that it has an arc and the other complexity is that's not how journalists answer questions <laughs> print journalists 
respect the rules of the inverted pyramid, <laughs> which is you blurt out everything at the top, yeah. you billboard everything, yeah. you just just spill your guts out at the top of the story because God forbid it jump inside the paper, please continue to be six. <laughs> you want all that good stuff at the top. Well, if you were to do that yeah. in a daily interview, you'd Oof. screw up the whole thing. Yeah. So we constantly have to both coach me and I then have to coach my colleagues to tell a story in this narrative news way where characters are developed, scenes are vividly painted, mm-hmm. and there's an arc, just like you said. And, and then again, that's not just a, that's not a natural thing. Yeah. And so it's been a huge learning process for me. So if I'm Matt Apuzo or Maggie Haberman, and maybe, and you tell me if different journalists who you interview have different ways of doing this, will they come in a little beforehand and you'll sketch out where it goes? Or will, will they be in on the process in that 90 minutes to two hours crafting where it goes? You've identified two of our favorite people to have on the show. Mine too. Matt Apuzo and mm-hmm. Maggie Haberman. Mm-hmm. And I think the answer to your question is that we we bring them in not too early because they're really busy and don't want to be interrupted as they're doing their, their reporting. Um, but we brainstorm with them. We'll get them on the phone and talk through what we want to do. And then we'll draw out of them the essential point of the segment. Then we'll go off and do our thing. And then at the beginning of the interview in a studio, we'll have a little check-in on what we're trying to do. And then we'll do the interview. You don't want to give them too much of a heads up because some of the things that I think you hear most in our interviews are the the, the, the curiosity mm-hmm. of the reporters. Yes. And I think you lose that if you're like, okay, so question one is going to be da 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 right. And they do not see scripts. I mean, so this yeah. is a thing, and I think, Mike, this is actually something that may agonize you as well. And because Theo's from Public Radio, I will not <laughs> ask her to opine on this. But I believe there is something out there called a scripted two-way, which mm. is where the, and this is very alien to me and it slightly offends me, that the host and the reporter know exactly what's going to be asked and exactly what's going to be said. That is not something we do. That's not something we're comfortable with. Not only is there something called a scripted two-way, it is the de facto. (laughs) It is the preferred state of much of public radio, and it drove me mad. They're trying to change. It's a little peculiar to me. I have great respect for it. When you hear a daily segment with someone like Maggie who might sing at the beginning of a segment. We've done all sorts of wacky yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. Or Matapuzo, who is dramatically describing something happening. You can hear in their voices how much this is not a scripted two-way. Mm-hmm. This is a expert in their world reacting and describing something they're seeing or having the epiphany in real time. And I think that makes a really huge difference. I think you can hear it. Yeah. Right, right. And I also like when, Michael, because you know the moves that a journalist is going to make by saying, well, that's the question. And then you'll say, yeah. well, what's the answer? <laughs> what's the answer? Yeah, right. That's a good one. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Don't you dare with that's the question. <laughs> I have one more question for each of you. I'll go. Uh, my question for you, Michael, is I heard you on the Long Form Podcast mm-hmm. talking about your grandfather who shamed the word like out of you. Right. <laughs> now, Babaro, an Italian surname, yes? Yes, but this was my yes, but this was a this was a Jew, this was the Jewish side. That is this exactly a, my question. <laughs> Are you an Italian Jew? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. This was this was Alan Rosenberg. Yes, I have I have the, I have one of the I have one of the world's greatest ethnic combinations. Tell right? Mike your middle name. Also known as Pizza Matza. Uh, Italian Jew. My middle name is Christopher. I have one of them. I have one of the most Italian names you can ever imagine being <laughs> said at the bima during your bar, during your bar mitzvah. Ready? I want to. I want to. Ready? I want. I, I just want to recreate this. Ready? We are gathered today to celebrate the bar mitzvah 
of Michael Christopher Barbar. I mean, it sounds like an episode <laughs> of The Godfather. <laughs> I'm a matzo pizza too. That's why. <laughs> matzo exactly. pizza recognize matzo pizza. Um, <laughs> but it's an excellent uh, combination for communication, is it not? Mm. We're, we're yes. communicative people, but all of yes. us. Yeah. Mm. And Theo, here's my question. Yeah. No, noted, yeah. noted media critic Steve Bannon said of The Daily, yeah, a little NPR-ish. Mm. What do you think of that? Did you take his oh, criticism man. to heart? No, I would, I just love that he's a listener. We have we have this dream of making this sort of list of all the people that we know that are daily listeners because they are a very diverse bunch. They are. I mean, I mean, I, we I think we viewed it as as a as a, a big go, a, as a good sign that we are capable of probably riling someone like Steve Bannon on any given day, and yet knowing that he's listening because he's finding enough balance in what we're up to. Yeah. So Michael Barbaro is the host of Theo Balcom is the managing producer of the podcast called The Daily. Thank you guys so much. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Mike. It was really fun. And now the spiel. Why did the GOP pass or will they pass once they uh, iron out the fine details, otherwise known as getting the actual law right. Why will they pass this tax bill? Well, it's because Republicans like to cut taxes. Yes, yes, I know, I know. But many people, as reclined, Bernie Sanders are saying, doesn't this show Republican hypocrisy or doesn't this show that Republicans are turning their backs on uh, the voters who put them in office, the uh, populist wave, the Tea Party angst, the Trump-infused distress? Well, listen, most Republicans weren't part of that rabble-rousing. They are a part of the establishment. And when you think about who they are and who sent them to Congress, it's a traditional Republican voter who salivates over tax cuts. Every congressman has a constituency of about 750,000 people. But this is where gerrymandering comes in. They all represent a bunch of people who they know will never vote for them and they don't really care about. A way to gerrymander districts is to put just enough black people in the district of a white Republican congressman who knows he'll never get the vote of the black people, but then you siphon them off from the other districts in your state. So you might have one black congressperson in your state that gets 90% of their vote from black voters, and then the other vote is distributed. So a whole bunch of other congressmen get, you know, 20% of the vote. Here's a statistic. There were four Republicans, there are four Republicans in Congress who represent at least half as many black people as white people. No Republicans represent more black people than white people. But in the congressional districts of four of them, the number of black people is 50% or greater than the number of white people. That number, 31 Democrats, represent more black people than white people. And that number that I was just talking about, where the number of black constituents that you have is at least half the number of white constituents, it's 47 Democrats are in that position. Now, I don't bring this up because race is a pure proxy for income, but it is a general proxy. But also realize this, the richer black people in America have jobs that are not favored by this tax bill. They are professionals, the richer black people, uh, lawyers and doctors. Those people won't get a great cut from this tax bill. It will be those with inherited wealth and those in certain industries like real estate, and mineral extraction that benefit from this tax bill. So Republicans in Congress really are representing most of their constituents. Now, there are exceptions. A lot of their constituents are the out-of-work machinist or 
the white guy in Indiana or Ohio or sections of Appalachia who want to restore America, you know, make America great again. So a lot of Republican congressmen, I'd say most of them, truly weren't riding the wave of disquiet, the great uprising that wore MAGA hats. They were just, you know, in general, pro-plutocrat, always have been. They won't wear the Plutocrats Forever t-shirt, but you know where they stand. So where do they stand on the deficit? Another part of the charge of hypocrisy is that they're hypocritical about the deficit. Who better to call out Republicans than uh, Bernie Sanders? He has this to say about Republican deficit hawks. I think the American people are getting awfully tired about Republican hypocrisy regarding the deficit. Let's take a short look back on American history. We went into war in Afghanistan and Iraq, and we forgot to pay for those wars. Can you imagine that? The great deficit hawks who were so worried about running up this huge credit card, they forgot to pay for two wars, which, by the time we take care of the last veteran, is going to end up costing us somewhere around $3 trillion. So here's what Republicans do say. They say that they are hawkish about the deficit. It's just something has to give. Tax cuts are hard. And whenever we talk about tax cuts or balanced budgets, something's got to give. Guess what? It's the deficit. In international relations, a similar thing exists. You know, balancing all the powers of Iran and Syria and Turkey. It's hard. Something's got to give. So you sell out the Kurds. It's just what you do. With budgetary politics, you sell out the deficit. Here is Representative Thomas Massey, who I'll talk about and his constituency a little bit in a second. But here is him talking to the Fox Business host, Kennedy, when she asked him, well, what about the deficit? Sure. But I think the responsible thing to do is what you're saying, Kennedy, is to cut spending. And there are places we could cut spending. If we roll back the Medicaid expansion that Obama did, I'm not even talking about Obamacare. I'm talking about the biggest increase in, in a welfare state that we've ever seen. If yeah. we roll back that Medicaid expansion without putting in our own version of Obamacare, we can save $800 billion. All right. So he's going to talk about cutting spending because a committed conservative will say, as he did say, that that's really how you bring the deficit down. Now, Thomas Massey represents a district in Kentucky that is riven with opioid use. And you might think that he would be against this tax cut because his people, many of his people, are hurt by income inequality. They don't really need super rich people to get tax cuts. But he's a libertarian. And where that instinct to help his people showed up is his no vote. He actually changed it to a hell no vote on Trump care, on the Obamacare reform, as they called it. And having done that, having at least satisfied his constituency or showed them, and perhaps, you know, adhering to his true convictions, showed them that he had their back on this, he reverts to the usual Republican conservative stance of wanting to cut taxes. Take all of the West Virginia congressional delegation. They're all Republicans. And you would think that their constituents don't really benefit from having huge tax breaks for the wealthy, even for huge corporations. Most West Virginians don't benefit from the tax bill as it's written, uh, mostly tax cuts for the wealthy. They're not wealthy. But the Republicans there believe that they can appeal to their voters based on what they did with Trump care, cultural issues, and they could vote as they always have as Republicans on the tax cuts. 
Now, there's another argument about the tax cuts that go like this. Well, there's going to be blowback. Maybe it's a good thing if you're a Democrat. You say, you know what? Maybe it's a good thing that the Republicans pass this because now they own it and it'll be a millstone around their neck. They'll cite the horrible polling that's been going on around the tax bill. You've probably heard it. Here's the deal. Largely, the American people are not in favor of this. In fact, a majority are opposed. In our brand new poll, 33% of Americans are in favor of this bill. 55% are opposed. So it's an upside-down bill in terms of popularity by 22 points. What is even more stark in these numbers is that that 55% opposition number, that's grown 10 points in the last month. It was 45% opposed last month. Now it's 55% opposed as people have learned more about it. It is unpopular. But you know what? I saw a morning consult poll today that had slightly different numbers. And it said that 44% of voters support the bill. 35% say they oppose it. Now you could say, all right, you get a poll to say anything and there are polls all over the place. But I think this may be what's going on with the tax bill. People oppose it because the process has been chaotic. The reporting about it makes it seem like not the way government should operate. There certainly are some headline provisions that are upsetting to a regular Joe, this or that rich guy getting a carve out. The process itself is opaque. That's not good. And it's confusing. And people oppose it. Some people oppose it because they don't know what's in it. I happen to oppose it because I think I do know what's in it. But I think enough people oppose it because they think it's going to be bad for them. That's really the bottom line on taxes. In fact, I know this because CNBC did the All-American Economic Survey, and they found that 70% believe their taxes in the next couple of years will either stay the same or increase. And they're wrong. Those people are wrong. Look, in the long term, at the tail end of this deal, there will be an end to the tax cuts, which will show up like a tax increase. But most people, especially in the short term, will get some tax break. All the experts say that in the first year, in 2018, 75% of taxpayers will get a tax cut. And once that happens, people will turn around on the bill. Now, I may be wrong. I'm not even arguing this to prove that I'm right. I'm just arguing this to say that's a plausible argument. It's a plausible enough argument for a Republican who has a conviction about tax cuts as it is to say, you know what, I'm going to vote for this. Because a major flaw in the analysis of this bill is to compare its benefits to its deficits. And what you really have to do is compare its benefits or what you want to call its net benefits, its possible net benefits to not passing it at all and not passing it at all to those Republican representatives from West Virginia, to Thomas Massey of Kentucky, to anyone who represents a constituency that really is part of a populist rebellion that wants to bring down the plutocrats, not passing it at all would be horrible for them because they would have nothing to show for their efforts. So this is at least something to show for their efforts. Is it a bad something? It might be, but I just laid out the case why it might be a good something. And you at least, since it doesn't go into effect until 2018, you at least live to fight another day. I think what all this proves is that a lot of the argument about the tax cut being immoral or unfair or just bad policy rests on a specific argument that the character of individual congressmen are to blame. I do not believe that at all. I do not believe that most people who voted for this bill are hypocrites or of compromised character. I believe it is the institution of Congress 
that is constituted in such a way to be compromised and to almost guarantee this really terrible tax bill. Don't blame character, blame the institution. And let that be a solace to you. Actually, it's much worse, isn't it? And that's it for today's show. Just producer Pierre Bienname maintains that listing him first in the credits and not Maine Senator Susan Collins is sexist. Just producer Mary Wilson favors credits so simple you could read them off a postcard. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, has found three provisions in this show that violate procedural rules. And therefore, hey, you know what, fuck it. We'll get the offensive language warning also and we'll make it four. The gist. We just want to wish Steve Mnuchin, Gary Cohen, and one of Roy Moore's lawyers a happy Hanukkah on this, the last night of the Festival of Lights. And thanks for listening. What is good for me is if everything takes off like a rocket ship, like it should have for 20 years.